recorded live. Hello, this is William Singh, and this is Krista Genninger on Talk Show. It is Friday, January 13th, 2012. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh. Last week we discussed James chapter 1. I think I spent more time on the introduction and exactly who James was, or at least as much time as as I did on the first chapter. Uh, I think that the highlight to the chapter, and and I will repeat it here, is is, um, 123, where it says that if one is a hearer of the word, the word of God, and not a doer, he is like a man observing... The appearance of his race, as we saw that the Greek actually says, in a mirror. And when he goes away, he forgets exactly what sort of man he was. We, the children of Israel, our race, born and created in the image of God, being one of his children is not, as James tells us, by itself enough. Yeah, sure, all Israel shall be saved, as Isaiah says. But being one of the children of God, we should desire to do the will of God. If we don't desire to do the will of God, well, there are many false brethren among us. However, if we are indeed one of his children and don't desire to do his will and to seek his will and and to fashion our own lives after him, as he said, if anybody wants to follow me, he must take up his cross behind me. If we don't do that, then then we're throwing away the precious gift that he gave us and, and our reward in heaven will be small. If, if indeed we're worthy of one at all. Tonight we will discuss James chapter 2. James chapters 2 and 3, actually, Yahweh willing. And I'll start with James 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not with respect of the stature of persons, not respect of persons, respect of the stature, as I like to translate it, and, and that's an archaic way of saying respect of the status of persons. Do not, with respect of the stature of persons, hold the faith of our Prince Yahshua Christ of honor, for if perhaps a man should enter into your assembly hall with a gold ring and a shining garment, a flashy car and lots of bling, and a beggar should enter in a filthy garment, then you should look upon he wearing the shining garment and say, you sit here comfortably. And to the beggar, you should say, you stand there or sit beneath my footstool. Have you not made a distinction among yourselves becoming judges of evil reasonings? Respect of persons is respect for the stature or the status of persons in judgment. The Greek word prosopolampsia comes from the word prosopon, which literally is the face, and the verb, which means to receive. It's the receiver of appearances. The use of the term by James reflects that same idea which Paul often infers 
Where the King James Version translates the Greek of word, that the Greek word prosopolentia, which is literally the receiving of a man's appearance and related phrases and, and words as respective persons. At Romans 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 11, Paul wrote, For there is no respect of persons with God. But in that chapter, in, in Romans 2, and, and it's fully evident in verses 9 and, and 10 and 12, in, in that chapter, the context is Israel's relationship to and judgment under the laws of God. So we see that where Paul says there's no respect of persons with God, Paul is talking about judgment under his law. A lawbreaker is a lawbreaker. When we break the law, we're all to be treated equally, and that's how we're supposed to judge each other in respect of the law, in respect of our daily actions. Matthew 2.16, in Matthew 2.16, the, the Pharisees approach Christ, and, and they say, Teacher, we know, or maybe this is the Sadducees, Teacher, we know that you are true, and in the way of God you teach in truth, and you know, and, and in you there is no thought for anyone. You do not look at the stature of men. In 2 Chronicles 19.7 it says, Wherefore now let the fear of Yahweh be upon you. Take heed and do it. For there is no iniquity with Yahweh our God, nor respect of persons, nor taking of gifts. It's talking about judgment. In Proverbs 24, 23, it says, These things also belong to the wise. It is not good to have respect of persons in judgment. Many commentators, many universalist Judeo-churchianity commentators, confuse the idea of respect of persons with one's race, and thereby they seek to surreptitiously include non-Israelites into the covenants of God something which cannot ever be done under any circumstances. The same Paul of Tarsus who said at Romans 11.29 that indeed the favor and calling of Yahweh are not to be repented of, meaning that the favors and callings and, and the covenant cannot be retracted or modified. That same Paul also added at Romans 15.8 that Yahshua Christ came to be a minister of circumcision in behalf of the truth of God for the confirmation of the promises of the fathers, which were only to the children of Israel. They can only include the children of Israel. We're confirming the promises of the fathers. We're not rebutting the promises of the fathers. In Romans chapter 9, Paul tells us, for only genetic Israelites, his kinsmen in accordance with the flesh, are the position of sons, the honor, the covenants, the legislation, the service, and the promises. Those people, those Israelites, whose are the fathers, and of whom are the anointed in regards to the flesh, being overall blessed of Yahweh forever. In Hebrews chapter 8, that same Paul again quotes Jeremiah in relation to those same covenants. For this is the covenant which I will devise with the house of Israel after those days, says Yahweh. 
Giving my laws into their minds, I will also inscribe them upon their hearts, and I will be for a God to them, and they shall be for a people to me. And by no means shall I teach each fellow man, each fellow his countrymen, and each, brother, each his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, because they all shall know me. Every child of Israel, every Christian, every true Christian, has had the opportunity to know God. We should no longer teach, saying, Know Yahweh, because they all shall know me, from the smallest unto the greatest among them. Because I will be propitious with their unrighteousness. That's what Christ is, a propitiation for the sins of the children of Israel. Everybody else is outside of that relationship. And their errors or their sins I will not at all remember hereafter. As James has said here in this epistle in chapter 1, there is not a variation or a shade of change with Yahweh our God. He doesn't change at all. His words are forever. If we think there's a conflict, the conflict lies in our understanding. Here in James, the term is clearly defined. It is absolutely evident that the term respect of persons the receiving of the appearance of persons, the respect of the stature of persons, has only to do with the status of a man who in any case already deserves a place in the assembly because he's already a child of Israel. And one cannot attempt to force outsiders, one cannot attempt to force other races into the assembly of God by these statements. Because that is an abuse of the meaning of the term, and a clear violation of the covenants of God, which cannot be amended by men. The phrase respective persons only means all other things being equal, that all men are to be judged equally under the law and in our daily estimations when we have intercourse and conversation together. You treat the poor brother the same way you would treat the rich brother. You don't despise the humble, and you don't exalt the wealthy. Proverbs 24, 23, and I repeat it again. These things also belong to the wise. It is not good to have respected persons in judgment. 1 Samuel 17, 16, 7. But Yahweh said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For Yahweh sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart. That is what is meant by respected persons in all contexts where the phrase appears. But it does not ever get aliens into the covenants of God. The covenants are immutable according to Scripture. No saying of Scripture nullifies any other saying of Scripture. If there is a conflict, or an apparent conflict, it is our understanding which is at fault. We're taking something out of context. We're trying to misapply something. James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, has Yahweh not chosen the beggars in society to be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. But you dishonor the beggar. 
James is teaching what he learned from Christ. That we should not ever dishonor those of our brethren who are of low estate. Matthew chapter 5, and I'll read verses 1 to 10. And seeing the clouds, he went up into the mountain. And upon his sitting, his students came to him, and opening his mouth, he instructed them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are mourning, because they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, because they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, because they shall be satiated. Blessed are those having mercy, because they shall be mercied. I like to use that as a verb. That's the way the Greek reads. They shall be granted mercy, we would say in English. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, because they shall see Yahweh. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they shall be called sons of Yahweh. Blessed are those who are persecuted on account of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The peacemakers, in our modern vernacular, we would think that the peacemakers are what God might consider compromisers. The peacemakers are not the world's compromisers. Rather, the peacemakers are those who uphold the word of God. As the proverb says, Proverbs 10.10 from the Septuagint, He that winks with his eyes deceitfully procures griefs for men. When you overlook your brother's violations of the laws of God, in the long run, you're causing more trouble than it's worth and you should have confronted him and saved that trouble in the first place. He that winks with his eyes deceitfully procures griefs for men, but he that reproves boldly is a peacemaker. He that seeks to uphold the word of God is a peacemaker. Compromisers are not peacemakers. Compromise was the second sin in the garden. Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6. Then John, hearing in prison the works of Christ, sending through his students, said to him, Are you he who is coming, or do we expect another? And responding, Yahshua said to them, Going, we put to John the things which you hear and you see. The blind see again and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf mutes hear. All these things are representative of the children of Israel in the dispersion. Christ came for sinners. Christ came to cleanse his children. He, claimed to, he came to redeem and recover his people, Israel, from their sins. And the dead are raised, and the poor have the good message announced. And blessed is he who would not be offended by me. The poor have the good message announced. Paul taught exactly as James did in regard to to this subject also, where in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he explains that Yahweh had chosen the fools, the feeble, the despised, the lowborn, those of his children, those of the children of Israel, who for the most part had not been so successful in this world. 
to be bearers of the world and to understand his wisdom. As Christ says in Matthew, it is they who shall reap the greater rewards because it is they who are loved by God. Good Christians, those who actually put their Christianity into daily practice, are precluded by that practice from becoming wealthy or powerful. It is the Christian Waltenschang, the Christian philosophy of life, which makes it difficult for Christians to become especially wealthy and powerful. It is the poor among us whom we should look out for the most. Yet so many of us naturally cater to the wealthy and powerful, and that is what James is addressing in this chapter of his epistle. We naturally cater to the wealthy and powerful in spite of the poor, the sickly, the feeble, and the humble, the people that really need our attention and our care. James 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, has Yahweh not chosen the beggars in society to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the beggar. Do not the wealthy exercise power over you, and they themselves drag you into trial. Do they themselves not blaspheme the good name labeled upon you? Those with their hearts set upon the things of this world. They are those who most readily gain power and wealth. They are those who drag us into court. They are those who harass us and who persecute their fellow men because they prefer the wealth of the world over the health of their brethren. Matthew 5, from verse 11. Blessed are you when they would reproach and persecute you, and being liars, they would speak any evil against you on account of me. Rejoice and exult, because great is your reward in the heavens. For thus they had persecuted the prophets who were before you. You were the salt of the earth, but if the salt is lost its savor, with what shall it be salted? It avails for nothing more than it is cast outside to be trampled by men. If the salt is caught up in the, in, in the world, it's not going to be salt. It, it's not going to be salt any longer, will it? Jeremiah the prophet he knew that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, and he announced it. He was told to announce it. He better follow the word of the God that told him to announce Jerusalem's pending destruction, and he knew better that he should do it. And he did, and it took some gumption for him to do that. To stand in front of all the rich and wealthy and powerful men of, uh, of the great ancient city, Jerusalem, and tell them, that their city was going to be destroyed for their sin. And they wanted to kill him. Who wanted to kill Jeremiah? The rich and the wealthy and the people that were in positions of power at the time because he, they felt threatened by him, even though he was telling them the truth. He was telling them that for their own good. They had room to repent. Of course, God knew ahead of time they wouldn't, and they didn't. It wasn't their nature, a lot of them. 
Go into any community in America and see the local merchants, the prominent businessmen, the landlords, the factory owners. They are treated like royalty on account of their wealth and their position. Common people bend over backwards for them. These are the men who have traditionally influenced our societies to bend the laws in their own favor. They do it all the time. They're doing it today. They have lobbyists in Washington. They're a lot more sophisticated now than they were in Jeremiah's time, but it's the same people. These are also the men who most often conspire against their own countrymen for the sake of their own commerce. Our history is replete with examples of this, and in Europe as well as in America. Yet if these men were good Christians who feared God, they would use their wealth to serve their communities. They would not use their wealth to lord over the communities they reside in. James talks about this again in chapter 5 of his epistle, and we'll get to that, Yahweh willing, next week. James 2, verse 8. If, however, you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love him near to you as yourself, you do well. Leviticus 19.18 Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh. You know, this New Testament message of Christ, it's right in the Old Testament. And it's a shame that people usually don't see it in the Old Testament, but it's right there. The word neighbor is a very misunderstood word. Neither the Greek nor the Hebrew intone that one's neighbor is simply anyone who happens to live in proximity to us. That's not what the word is at all. An examination of the so-called Indo-European roots of the word neighbor prove that the word originally has nothing to do with geographical proximity. It has everything to do with those of one's own clan or race who are proximate. The word neighbor in the phrase in Leviticus 19.18, which says, love thy neighbor, in Hebrew is ultimately derived from a verb which means to graze together and therefore it can only refer to the sheep. The Hebrew word, Strong 7453, Rea, is defined by Strong as an associate, and it's translated in the King James Version variously as brother, companion, fellow, friend, husband, lover, or neighbor. The word is derived from the verb Rea, Strong's number 7462, which means to tend to flock, i.e. to pasture it, intransitively to graze, and by extension to associate with. Therefore, this word can only properly be used of other flock members. It can't be used to refer to somebody outside of your flock. Wolves do not graze together with sheep. If wolves and sheep are on the same field, the sheep are lunch. 
The Greek phrase for neighbor, where it appears in the New Testament in these contexts, is hoplasius. With the article, it's a substantive used as a noun, and it is always translated in the King James Version as neighbor. Because of the general misunderstanding of the word neighbor, I always translate it literally as he near to you or something similar. That's what it means literally. The nominative form of the Greek word plesios is both an adverb and a preposition, and it means near to or close by. Either word, uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's derived from an adverb, pelis, which means near, hard by, or close. Either word, pelis or plesios, used as a substantive, was used to denote one's neighbor, and Liddell and Scott give examples of this from secular writers who use either plesios or pelos. But in secular Greek, there are other words used by contemporary secular authors and in the New Testament, which are also translated neighbor. Among those other words are gaitone. A gaitone is one which is, ex- well, is explicitly someone of the same land and it's found in Luke, and it's used by John. Another word is perioikos, which is a dwelling, a dwelling round. Hoi perioikoi are the neighbors, the people who dwell around. But wherever we see love thy neighbor and love him near to you, and, and, and phrases like that, the words are not gaiton or perioikos, and those words can describe simply someone in your geographical proximity. Placion does not. The use of the phrase placion does not necessarily mean to refer to geographical proximity. There are other more specific words, gaiton and perioikos, which mean that. Placion simply denotes one who is near to a person. With all of the other injunctions found in the law, it can only refer to one of the sheep. As the Old Testament word, rea, fully suggests. It cannot refer to a wolf who has simply moved in nearby. It can't refer to anyone outside of your flock. This meaning... The veracity of this meaning is magnified where Yahshua tells his followers not to share their pearls or that which is holy with dogs and with swine. At Matthew 5.43, Yahshua Christ is credited with the words, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Now what meaning would the saying have if one's enemy, as is often the case, lived in the house next door? You shall love your near countrymen, one of your same flock who happens to be close to you. So here it should be evident that Tom Placion is one near to you. It's an associate. It's a fellow flock member. It's not simply some alien who happens to live nearby you geographically. 
In the ancient world, and I, this could be cited from Strabo, the geographer, who died in 25 AD. He wrote until about 25 AD. So he's right in he, he's writing while Christ is walking this earth. Strabo, the geographer, was marveled at certain Greek cities where people of more than one tribe lived in the same city. That was basically unheard of for a long time. It should be unheard of today, but it's not, sadly. Now we have diversity. Now we have destruction. Now destruction is the government policy because that's what diversity naturally leads to. Look at Egypt. Strabo marveled at Egypt that certain cities had people of different tribes or races dwelling in them. And that is true of ancient Egypt. It wasn't true of ancient Greece or Rome. It was rare that people of diverse tribes inhabited any particular city. It happened, but it was rare. In the ancient Greek world, you would expect your neighbor to be of your own race. And that's always the context in which these words are spoken. Verse 9, but if you respect the stature of persons, you commit an error, being convicted by the law as transgressors. For he who should keep the whole law but would fall in one point has become liable for all. For he, having said you should not commit adultery, also said you should not commit murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. All men are sinners, each and every one of us. We may not have all committed murder or adultery, but we have all at some point in our lives transgressed the law. The Apostle John in his first epistle says that if we should say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Men are good at renouncing the sins which they have not committed while ignoring the laws which govern the sins that they have committed. Yet James reminds us that all of us, having at one time or another transgressed the law, we are all lawbreakers in the eyes of God. So no matter the station in life, no matter the stature of a person, we must judge all men equally and we must respect all men equally in accordance with the law and the word of God, while also obeying all of those other commands to be a separate people, to be holy unto God. James 2.12 Thusly you speak, and thusly you do, as if going to be judged by a law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy for him not effecting mercy. Mercy exalts over judgment. We, the children of Israel, have a promise from God to be judged mercifully. And therefore, we must judge our brother mercifully. From Matthew chapter 18, we see this parable of Christ from verse 21. Then coming forth, Peter said to him, Prince, how many times shall my brother do wrong to me that I shall forgive him? As many as seven? 
Yahshua says to him, I do not say to you as many as seven, but as many as 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of the heavens is compared to a man who is king, who had desired to take an account together with the servants. And upon beginning to take it, one had been brought to him, a debtor of 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents at that time was a very considerable amount of money. A talent would have been several years' pay for a soldier. And not having it to repay the master, he ordered him to be sold, and the wife and the children and everything, whatever he has, and to be repaid. Then falling down, the servant made obeisance to him, saying, Have patience with me, and I shall repay everything to you. Then being deeply moved, the master of that servant released him and forgave the loan for him. And departing, that servant found one of his fellow servants who owed a hundred denarii to him, and seizing him, he strangled him, saying, Repay anything you owe. Then falling down, his fellow servant exhorted him, saying, Have patience with me, and I shall repay you. But he did not desire it. Rather departing, he cast him into prison until he would repay that which is owed. Therefore, seeing the things which happened, his fellow servants grieved exceedingly, and going, they explained to their own master all the things which happened. Then summoning him, his master says to him, Wicked servant, I forgave you for all that debt since you exhorted me. Had it not been necessary also for you to have mercy for your fellow servant, even as I had mercy for you? And his master, being angry, handed him over to the torturers until when he, until when he should repay all that which is owed. Thusly also shall my heavenly Father do to you, if you would not each forgive his brother from your hearts. All men are sinners. Some of us to much greater degrees than others. Therefore, when our brother harms us, if we expect God to forgive us as he has promised, then we had better forgive our brother when our brother transgresses against us. Of course, a brother should be repentant. In verse 12 above, James tells us to act as if we were going to be judged by a law of liberty. Many fools in Christianity, and especially in Christian identity, attempt to criticize Paul for somehow doing away with the law, a charge which is patently untrue. However, Christian Israelites must know that we are not going to be judged by Christ under the condemnation of the law. For that reason, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 that we should voluntarily seek to establish the law. The reason that Christ died for us was that we would be free, the children of Israel would be free from the condemnation of the law, as Paul explains in his epistle to the Romans, especially in Romans chapter 7, where, using the analogy from the ancient 
Israelite kingdom that Yahweh himself used. Paul explains that Yahweh the husband died for our sins, that Israel, the wife, the nation, would be free from condemnation, being a harlot. That is the relationship of our nation to our God. We collectively are his wife. When our ancient ancestors chased false gods, began to mix their race, began to co-mingle with the people of the land that they were told not to do those things with, they were put out as fornicators. Fornicators are worthy of death under the law. The entire nation is worthy of death under the law. Yet Yahweh promised that we would not die, that he would preserve us, that he would redeem us. He did that. As Paul explains in Romans chapter 7, by coming and dying for us, which freed us from the condemnation of the law. Real simple. Christianity made simple. True Christianity made simple. If we were judged by the law, we would all be liable to death because we are all transgressors of the law which is what James is telling us here. This is the perfect law of freedom, which James mentioned in the first chapter of this epistle. And this is what Peter mentioned to us, our liberty in 1 Peter 2.16, that we should not use it as a cloak for sin. Just as Paul said in Romans chapter 3, that while we may be free from the law, we should voluntarily seek to establish the law. We should live by it. We ourselves first, before we ever think about judging another. Therefore, Paul tells the Galatians in Galatians chapter 2 that there were false brethren unawares brought in who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ. The Judaizers. Paul was talking about the Judaizers who wanted the Pharisees and the Edomites saw Christianity as an opportunity to subject a wider group of people to their interpretations of the law and their repression because they were legalists. And that was one thing that Paul struggled against in his ministry. Later in Galatians chapter 5, Paul told the Galatians to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage to the rituals of the law. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, meaning to follow lust, but by love serve one another the Catholic Church with its sacramentalism later enslaved us again and we fell for it. A different type of ritual, a different set of rituals. So we see that all of the apostles, Peter, Paul, and James, taught the same things very consistently and disputes and contentions over these things come only from men with agendas. Men who want to impose their own will 
over the word of God. James 2.14. What is the benefit, my brethren, if one should claim to have faith but does not have works? Is faith able to save him? If a brother or sister becomes naked and lacking daily food, and one from among you should say to them, Go in peace, be warm and fed. But you would not give to them the provisions for the body, what is the benefit? Thus we also faith, if it should not have works, is by itself dead. Do you claim to love your brother? And not help to see that he is provided for. You can wish well with your mouth, but if you do not take action to help your brethren, your well-wishing is vain. As James explains here, tell your, telling your brother, go in peace, be warm, and be fed is not enough. You must do something to make certain that your brother is actually warm and fed. Here are the words of Christ again in Matthew chapter 24 from verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has appointed over his whole household to give them food at the appropriate time? Blessed is that servant whom having come his master shall find him doing thusly. Truly I say to you that he shall appoint him over all his properties. But if that bad servant should say in his heart, my master delays, and he should begin to beat his fellow servant, and should eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant shall come on a day which he does not expect, and at an hour which he does not know. And he shall cut him in two and set his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Christ is not talking here about first century slaves. They are just the analogy. If we are the children of Israel, we are the servants of God. We are called his servants in many scriptures, such as in Isaiah 41.8 where Yahweh says, But now, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Note that this servant, this wicked servant in the parable, was expected to take care of who? The other servants. Where all the, if you're a child of Israel, you're a servant of God. And being his servants... Whatever we have comes from him, and it belongs to him. He grants it to us. We are to use it to perform his will. By this, we are tested. If we do well, we have a great reward in heaven. Earthly rewards are temporary. Heavenly rewards are forever. Here's another parable from Luke chapter 12. Then he spoke to them a parable saying, The land of a certain wealthy man produced bountifully. 
And he had reasoned within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I do not have where I may gather my fruits? And he said, This I shall do. I shall take down my storehouse, and I shall build a greater one. And I shall gather there all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Rest, eat, drink, and be happy. Then Yahweh said to him, Fool, this night your life is demanded of you. The things which you have prepared, for whom shall they be? So he's storing up riches for himself. So is he storing up riches for himself and not for Yahweh. If the rich man had filled his original storehouse, he still would have had plenty of goods for himself. Then the things that wouldn't fit into it the excess that he had, if he had taken that excess and made certain that his needy countrymen had what they were wanting, perhaps he would not have been judged so harshly. Back to James 2.18. Rather, one shall say, you have faith and I have works. Show to me your faith without the works, and I shall show to you faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe it, and they shudder. Now do you desire to know, O vain man, that faith without works is idle? There was apparently some confusion among first century Christians. <clears throat> this is evident in Paul's epistles. Especially, as Peter also explains in his second epistle, Confusion over some of the writings of Paul. Yet, as we can tell from Paul's own epistles, it was the enemies of Christ who were purposely confounding Christian teachings, even at that time. And so they continue to do so today. Paul argues that the works of the law were done away with. It can be proven from the Septuagint and from the Dead Sea Scrolls that by the phrase, works of the law, Paul meant those sacrifices and rituals which were necessary under the Old Covenant. There are appearances of the phrase, works of the law, in Leviticus, in the Septuagint, which clearly refer to the rituals of the temple, which were demanded by Yahweh to fulfill the law. That is what Paul meant by his phrase, works of the law. The things that the law compelled us to do for sin and on various other occasions. The rituals of the Old Covenant that have been put away in Christ. Christ, the Lamb of God, <clears throat> is our final sacrifice. And so there is need for rituals no longer as even Daniel had prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. James says here that faith without works is dead, as the King James has it. In one place, the manuscripts are divided between the word dead and the word idle, the better manuscripts. Paul agrees, but Paul's explanations come in a different method. We can't take, as many fools do, Paul's use of the phrase works of the law and compare it to James's statement here 
And many fools claim that Paul and James were arguing. They certainly were not. By works of the law, Paul was talking about the rituals. He wasn't talking at all of what James is talking about when he says the phrase works, when he uses the phrase works of the law. James here is talking about the good deeds that men do, that Christian men and women should do for each other, to look after each other as Yahshua commanded us. Paul agrees with James, but his explanations come in a different method. Paul said it Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, for in favor, speaking to children of Israel, for in favor you are being preserved. That favor is Yahshua's sacrifice on behalf of our sin. Is Yahshua, Yahweh himself coming as a man and dying so that the children of Israel would not be judged by the law? Romans chapter 7. That's the favor that we, the children of Israel, have from God. For in favor you are being preserved. Through faith. And this, Yahweh's gift, is not of yourselves, not from works, not from those rituals, lest anyone would boast. For his work we are, having been established among the number of Christ for good works. That's what Paul is talking about. That's what James is talking about. Which Yahweh before prepared that we would walk in them. The spirit of everything that James says here concerning wealth, faith, and good works is summed up again by Paul. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, where he says, and I'll read from verse 17, To those who are wealthy in this present age, you exhort neither to be high-minded nor to have hope in uncertain riches, but in Yahweh who provides for us all things richly for enjoyment. To do good work, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, to be sharing, storing up for themselves, a good foundation for the future in order that they would obtain the true life. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. To repeat, James 2, 19, you believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe it, and they shudder. Remember this when a Judaized churchianity, so-called Christian, a Christian Zionist, tells you that all one has to do is believe in Jesus to be saved, which is all a lie. All one has to do is be an Israelite who is part of the covenant and then to submit himself to Christ and then to pick up one's cross and follow him we gain a reward. The Christian Zionists have taken Paul's words out of context and twisted them to fulfill a universalist agenda. Even the demons know there is but one God, and even the demons know that he was manifest as Yahshua Christ, 
and they shudder indeed. At Matthew chapter 8, 28-31, we see this. And the pot is coming to the other side to the country of the Gadarenes. Two men possessed by demons coming out from among the tombs met with him, exceedingly troublesome, so that not anyone is able to pass through by that road. And behold, they cried out, saying, What is it with us and with you, O son of Yahweh? Have you come already to torment us prematurely? Now there was afar off from them a herd of many swine feeding. And the demons exhorted him, saying, If you cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. So the demons, the demons knew who he was, and they knew that he would be opposed to them, that the time is coming when he will indeed torment them. Of course, the demons have no hope in salvation. There'll be more about demons at the end of this presentation. Had Abraham our father, verse 21, not been deemed righteous by works, offering Isaac his son upon the altar? Do you see that the faith had operated together with his works, and by works the faith had been perfected? And the scripture had been fulfilled which says, and Abraham believed Yahweh, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he is called a friend of Yahweh. Observe that a man is deemed righteous by works and not by faith alone. And in like manner was not Rahab the harlot also deemed righteous by works, receiving the messengers and discharging them by another way. For just as the body is dead, the body without a spirit is dead, thusly also faith without works is dead. Our daily deeds, the manner in which we live our lives, the things that we do every day in the course of our regular actions, these are our works. Not anything special we do whenever we are reminded that we are supposed to be Christians, but every common act which we do, through these we manifest our faith. Paul explained in Romans chapter 4, where he defines the faith of Abraham as Abraham's belief that Yahweh's word was true when he was told that his seed, his offspring, would become many nations, not as the Catholics teach, that many nations would become his seed, which is absolutely ridiculous. Because Abraham believed Yahweh, for that he was considered righteous. Paul didn't get into the fact in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham acted on that faith, which is what James is saying here. Abraham had the faith. His actions proved it. His actions perfected his faith. But in Hebrews chapter 11, Paul does tell us how Abraham exhibited that faith. In verse 17, and I will quote, 
By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. That's that that term only begotten son in, in some of my writings it's demonstrated clearly that that's an idiom for best loved son, right? Abraham had other sons. Paul also believed Paul also explained in Hebrews eleven eight that by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. In other words, Abraham went out without knowing exactly what he was getting himself into. So while Abraham believed God, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, he believed that his offspring would become many nations, and for that he was considered righteous. He displayed that belief in carrying out God's wishes, which is what James is exhorting us to here in this chapter. We have to act on our faith. If we today believe God, then we also should seek his will and we should act upon it in our day-to-day lives, every day, not only on church days. Now, as an aside, Rahab here was called a harlot. And James is clearly repeating what he had read in the Greek in the Septuagint. And we can't question James's use of the word. However, we can wonder about how James understood the word. Rahab was not necessarily a harlot. The misunderstanding between the, the misunderstanding being that the Hebrew word from which the ancient Septuagint was translated also may refer to a woman who was engaged in retail trade that is not necessarily trade of her own body, which is what a harlot is, a zona in Hebrew. It is clear as Joseph is believed and as his own account of the story of Rahab relates that she was an innkeeper and not necessarily a harlot. The Greek word porne, just like the Hebrew word it was translated from, is loosely related to words that describe conveyance for the purposes of trade. Actually, fornication is pornuo, and conveyance for the purpose of trade is poruo. The words are very closely related. It's from pornuo that we get the word porne. In Hebrew, the word zoom, if I remember um, Clifton Emmerheiser's writing on the topic properly, the word zoom means somebody who is engaged in a trade, and zona is a woman, is the feminine form of that, and zona is also the word used of a prostitute. If Rahab was an innkeeper, then the word described Rahab. However, not in the sense of selling her own body. So Rahab 
it, if we look back at the ancient Hebrew, and, and James was very, li- very likely, depending upon the scriptures that he had, the, the scriptures that he had to work with, and, and since his quotes of the New Testament are very similar to the Septuagint, it's not precisely similar, it would be easy to see why James thought Rahab was a porne, and that's what he wrote, because that's what the Septuagint calls her. But several hundred years before James's time, the inference isn't necessarily that she was a whore, but only that she was engaged in retail trade as a woman, which an innkeeper, who happens to be a woman, very well could be. So there's ancient confusion over those terms. Josephus in Antiquities makes it very clear he believed from his manuscripts which he had that Rahab was indeed a keeper of an inn. And that would make Rahab much more um, suitable to be a wife of one of the princes of Judah, being an established businesswoman, who from herself was almost certainly from the tribe of Judah, the scarlet thread of Zara, who was already in the dispersion, who was already departed from the main tribe of the Israelites. A lot of Zara's sons had already long departed from Egypt. Rahab very very well may have, and I believe she did, descend from them, from Zara Judah. the people of the Scarlet Thread. James chapter 3. You must not produce many teachers, my brethren, knowing that we shall receive a greater judgment. As Paul explains in Romans chapter 2, those who claim to be teachers yet do not teach the word of God righteously are actually blaspheming God. James 3, 2. For we all fall often. If anyone does not fail in word, he is a perfect man, able to guide with the bridle even the whole body. There was only one of those, Joshua Christ. Even if the bridles of horses are put into their mouths for which to persuade them for us, then we maneuver their whole body. Behold, also, there are such great ships, and being driven by severe winds, maneuvered by the smallest rudder, being driven straight where impulse desires. Thus we also, the tongue, is a small body part and boasts loudly. Behold, how small a fire ignites so great a forest. And the tongue is a fire, an ornament of injustice. The tongue sits among our body parts, soiling the whole body and setting ablaze the course of existence and being burned by Gehenna. It sets ablaze the course of existence and it suffers corrosion like the rest of the body does in death. James had already said at 119, You know, my beloved brethren, that every man must be quick for which to listen, slow for which to speak, and slow for anger. Vengeance belongs to Yahweh, and the anger of man does not accomplish the vengeance of God. 
There are more than a few similar sayings found in the Greek classics, and among my favorites are those from Theognis, an elegaic poet of the 6th century B.C., 700 years before James. He says, Many men do not have on their tongue a door that closes with a well-adjusted fit. And again, The mind is a good thing, and so is the tongue, but they are found in few men who have control over both. And once more, he said, Speech is apt to cause many a slip for mortal men. Yet if the tongue alone gets us into so much trouble, why should we have one? Rather, the tongue is a tool, and we should use it wisely. Therefore, as James says, we should be quick to listen and slow for which to speak. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 27. An ungodly man diggeth up evil, and in his lips there is as a burning fire. In Psalm 52, 2 through 4, the tongue has devised unrighteousness. Like a sharpened razor, thou hast wrought deceit. Thou hast loved wickedness more than goodness, unrighteousness better than to speak righteousness. Thou hast loved all words of destruction and a deceitful tongue. Of course, in Psalm 52, David refers to Doug the Edomite, who slew the priests of Yahweh for Saul. Jeremiah 9.3 And they bend their tongues like their bow for lies, but they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they know not me, saith Yahweh. And Yahweh is speaking to the children of Israel, who went a-whoring after people like Doug the Edomite, and still do today. Sirach 5.9 Winnow not with every wind, and go not into every way. So does the sinner that has a double tongue. Winnow not with every wind, and go not into every way. In other words, don't follow after every wind of doctrine. Don't go along whichever way the wind blows. That is being double-tongued. 1 Timothy 3.8 Likewise, the ministers must be grave, must be serious, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. Matthew 15, verses 17 through 20. Do you not yet understand that whatsoever enters into the mouth, and of course Christ is talking about food, goes into the belly and is cast out into the drought, the latrine. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands do not, does not defile a man. All of these things, of course, are true. But we must consider how and what kind of speech causes men to slip. And in whose perception do men slip? One man might think that you have erred when he does not like what you say. But what is sin? To slip in the eyes of man or to slip in the eyes of God? 
The Judeans thought Peter and John were in error. When Peter and John told them at Acts 4.19, whether it is just before Yahweh to listen to you, or rather, to listen to Yahweh, you decide. From the Apocrypha, from the Septuagint, Wisdom 1.6. For wisdom is a loving spirit and will not acquit a blasphemer of his words. For God is witness of his reins. The reins were the bowels, which were seen as the seat of emotions, right? For God is witness of his reins and a true beholder of his heart and a hearer of his tongue. James says that we all fall often. We all fail often. And, of course, that is true. But if we seek with our hearts to be true to the word of God, our good deeds will far outweigh our failures after our works have passed through the fire. Verse 7. For every species... The Greek word is schusis. It's a form or a kind or a natural type. For every species of both beasts and birds and reptiles and sea creatures is tamed and has been tamed by the species of man. You know, by the, by the phrase species of man, James refers to the Adamic, schusis. He's referring to his people that he's writing to. The Adamic fusus, the Adamic kind. The King James has fusus as kind here on both occasions where I've translated it species. This is a reference, James 3.7, is a reference to Genesis chapter 1. Where it says in Genesis 1.26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. By this verse in James 3.7, we see that Adam kind, that our race was commissioned in Genesis chapter 1. We also see that Genesis chapter 1 referring to our race does not refer to any so-called pre-Adamic race of non-whites, which, quite sadly, many people in Christian Israel identity still believe. James is taking Adam's commission, chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and applying it to our Adamic race, period. There's only one Adam in Genesis. James 3.8, but the tongue, no one of men is able to tame. We all screw up, right? It is an unstable evil, full of death-bearing poison. With it, we praise the prince and father, and with it, we would curse men who have been born according to the likeness of Yahweh. From the mouth, from the same mouth proceeds praise and curse. There is no need, my brethren, for these things to be so. Likewise, Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, you must not let any corrupt word go out of your mouth. But if anything good is of use for building, that would give delight to those listening. Luke 6.28, Christ says, 
Bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. Of course, he's talking about fellow Israelites. Because his message, as he professes in Matthew 15, 24, is only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Romans 12, 14. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. But a curse, I must assert, is not merely a dirty word. Calling someone a whore, calling someone a bastard, for instance, that is not cursing. It might be a slander if it's not true, but it's not a curse. And if it is true, then it's only a statement of fact, even if it is not the most pleasant language. A curse in the ancient world is an imprecation of evil upon someone. A curse is to overtly wish someone harm. That is a curse. James 3.11 Does any spring, meaning a spring of water, from the same opening flow bitter and sweet? Is it possible, my brethren, for a fig tree to make olives or grapevine figs? Neither does salt make sweet water. Who is wise and knowledgeable among you? He must show by, his good, by good conduct his works in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and rivalry in your hearts, do not exult and lie against the truth. Lying against the truth. That's the end of that. That's the purpose. When I say end here, I mean purpose. That's the purpose of James's conversation here about guiding the tongue, lying against the truth. That is how the tongue sets off a world of iniquity. Teaching lies contrary to the word of God. That is how the tongue gets a man into trouble. If I speak against God then I pray to be corrected. If I speak against men and they blaspheme me and retort with slanders, then I praise God. Because, as Joshua Christ told us in Luke chapter 6, Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they separate from you, and they reproach and cast out your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in accordance with these same things did their fathers to the prophets. Submitting to the truth of the scriptures, that is true meekness. Playing polite, being nice to everybody. That isn't meekness, as pop culture would have us believe today. In fact, the serpent in the garden, he was playing politely. Submission to God and to his word, that is real meekness and that is real humility. Today, there are serpents in Christian identity acting with false humility to curry the favor of the weak-minded and at the same time persuading them that Yahweh will judge bastards based on their behavior. These men are evil deceivers. They are wicked false brethren who crept in unawares. A bastard shall never enter the congregation of Yahweh, period. And yet these men are considered humble and nice and meek. They're not meek. That's false humility. A real meek man submits himself to the word of God. To hell with false humility. 
And to hell with playing polite. That is not humility. That's false pretense. That's exactly what it is. As we see James explain here, heresies of doctrine most often come out of pride of heart. As he says in verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and rivalry in your hearts, do not exalt yourself against and, and lie against the truth. This is the source of nearly all of our disputes. Yes, there are some disputes that are honest. However, those disputes are usually minor, and they have no real relevancy or danger to sound doctrine. Yet there are many people in Christian identity who have not shed their Catholic, their Baptist, their Jehovah's Witnesses, or other unsound beliefs that they brought to Christian identity with them. And there are just as many people in Christian identity who imagine themselves to be the revealers of some great new and unique idea which will somehow save us from error. These themselves, they are far greater errors. The trumpeting of frauds such as Ron Wyatt, Jordan Maxwell, Zechariah Sitchin, so-called Mayan calendar prophecies, Elenin, Nibiru, and many other so supposed discoveries, such as men imagining themselves to be one of the two witnesses, or men who imagine themselves to be one of the 144,000 of the Revelation. They come from rivalries and jealousies. They cause disputes. All of these things are errors which are nurtured by pride. All of these things are lies, and when we fall for them, they only lead us into reproach and an indefensible position in the light of true biblical scholarship. How can we willingly spread these lies and even care to face our Redeemer? If doctrine is not explicit in the original languages of Scripture, then forget about it. It's not doctrine at all. If truth cannot be established in the light of Scripture and by two or three witnesses and also stand in the context of the rest of Scripture, then it is not truth at all. A, the tongue gets us into a world of iniquity when we create lies and claim that those lies came from God. Verse 15. This is not wisdom coming down from above, but earthly, animal, demoniacal. As John says in chapter 4 of his epistle, we are to test every spirit to see whether they are from God or whether they are of the world. Spirits born of the world are not from God. And they are the spirits of demons. As demons, according to the book of Enoch, are the disembodied spirits of bastards, then it naturally follows that bastards are the embodied spirits of demons. 
It's that simple. Verse 16. For where jealousy and rivalry are, there is instability and every mean deed. Well, this describes all of those who have nothing better to do than to attack us, to make ad hominem attacks. It describes all of the trolls, all of the naysayers, who have nothing better to do than to sit in forums and persecute us, rather than subjecting themselves to the word of God. By harassing Christians who seek the word of God, they make manifest their jealousy and their rivalry, and we witness their instability and every mean deed. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first indeed pure, then peaceful, reasonable, obedient, full of acts of mercy and good fruits, unhesitating, unhypocritical. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those making peace. Yet, as I said at the beginning of this presentation this evening, the peacemakers are not what we perceive as negotiators. Negotiators are compromisers. The word of God is not to be compromised. The peacemakers are not the world's compromisers. Rather, the real peacemakers are those who seek to uphold the word of God. As the proverb says, He that winks with his eyes deceitfully procures griefs for men, but he that reproves boldly is a peacemaker. So if you disagree with what you read here, just leave. And if you cannot leave but need to make incessant and nagging attacks otherwise, if you need to cause strife in the assembly, you are certainly proving that you are not a Christian in the first place. Real Christians are not going to compromise. That is James chapters 2 and 3. Thank you for listening tonight. God bless you all, and praise Yahweh. I will be back here tomorrow night, and the program topic will be announced on my website tomorrow because I haven't made my mind up yet. I will be back here next Friday with James chapters 4 and 5. Good night, everybody. God bless.